Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to end up in Matthew 28, but there's a reason why I thought, well, instead of just preaching on the uh, resurrection by itself, which we've certainly done that already uh, a few times since I've been here, it's good to stop sometimes and remind ourselves why the resurrection matters that we might understand the resurrection. You cannot understand and appreciate what Christ did that Sunday morning unless we understand the rest of the Bible, and in particular, the death of the Lord. If you don't understand what happened on the cross, then the, the, the resurrection really doesn't mean anything to you. you know, we, there are people who think of an example of uh, the cross as an example of God's love and Resurrection speaks of new life and uh, that we'll someday have eternal life. But it's, it's all nebulous. They don't really understand it. And we've talked about this before. <clears throat> Men like Andy Stanley, a false prophet, by the way, who uh, says that, well, it really doesn't matter what the Bible says elsewhere, whether you even have the Bible or not, as long as Jesus is alive, nothing else matters. But the stupidity of that statement is that if you don't know what the rest of the Bible, if you don't understand sin and death and how it's ruined us and what Christ did to fix that on the cross, and then the resurrection really makes no sense, has no meaning to us. Unless we come into union with Christ's death, you will not benefit from the resurrection. The resurrection isn't just a general promise of life after death. It is a statement that what happened on in the incarnation of Christ and his death on the cross has brought salvation for us from the wrath of God towards sin. So today I want us to remind ourselves what took place on Friday so that we can proper, properly uh, celebrate and understand the resurrection of Christ on Sunday. You can't have one without the other. Or if you do have one without the other, you have nothing. If Christ didn't raise, his work of the cross is meaningless. And if Christ is just alive, but we don't understand what he accomplished on the cross, then his resurrection is meaningless to us. And so, in Isaiah 53, we have one of the clearest teachings of Christ's death in the entire Bible let alone in the Old Testament. But it really begins in chapter 52, in verse 13 through 15. So just turn there if you would. I want to just briefly, because that really sets up the stage. It begins this section, which is all about Christ coming in the incarnation, hanging on a tree, being uh, dying, and being buried, and uh, right, raised again. All those things are in Isaiah 53. But we notice here in uh, chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, a triple glorification of Jesus Christ being foretold. He says, behold, look, I want you to see this. or something that you need to study carefully. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be, and notice three, three different uh, aspects of glorification. He shall be high. He shall be lifted up. And of course, Jesus, uh, in John, several times refers to his being lifted up, uh, as euphemism for being lifted up on the cross, right? Of dying. 
So how will Jesus be glorified on earth? He, he is going to be glorified by being lifted up on the cross and shall be exalted. And so there's going to be in the cross something else is going to happen that's going to exalt him. I think it's a reference at least in part to the cross, to the resurrection. He shall be exalted in that he will be raised. And of course, ultimately he shall be ascended and sit on the very throne of the universe. But it's going to start with his being exalted on the cross. The cross is a way in which Christ is glorified even in a deeply humiliating experience. So he says, behold, study what you, as you gaze on this cross, for something wonderfully has happened, wonderful is happening. In verse 14, as many were astonished at you, which again helps us understand it's a reference to the cross, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance that his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So in verse 14, he's going to be lifted on the cross and uh, by, and because of what's happening on the cross leads us to verse 15. So in this way, as a result of this uh, physical abuse as he hangs on the tree, he shall sprinkle many nations. And of course, we know sprinkling comes from the Old Testament law, the tabernacle. As that sacrificial lamb was slain, the people were sprinkled by that blood as they, as the covenant was ratified. So it speaks of an application of the blood, which is a euphemism for the death of Christ. So it, something, it, when Christ dies, it shall bring salvation to the nation. He shall sprinkle many nations through the cross, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which was not has not been told them they shall see. So shutting their mouths speaks of veneration as they hear the gospel for the, for the first thing. So what verse 15 is saying is that the, the Gentile world did not see Christ on the cross. They, they didn't understand it. They never saw it. But when they hear about it, they sh- it'll shut their mouths. They, they shall see it. When, when it's told them, they will see it. And it's important to understand that because there's going to be a direct contrast when we come to chapter 15 with the Jews who did see Jesus Christ as he hung up on a cross and did not believe. And, and, and Isaiah is going to point that out very strongly. So first he says, that the Gentile, these, these Gentiles didn't see it, but when they heard about it, they believed it. But the Jews, when they saw it, they did not believe it. And so as we come to chapter 15, he explains in more detail what actually happened on the cross. And notice that he intimates uh, that for the most part, the Jews don't realize what they will be looking at or understand the significance. Notice again how he moves over into a, an opposite way of thinking with the Jews. Who has believed our report? What? Who has believed in what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So there's something here which Isaiah is saying is that this good news of Christ being exalted on the cross uh is, is not being received very well from his people, as he's going to go on to say. In fact, 
uh, we see in the New Testament this uh, this very verse being used like this in Romans 10. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, which is another uh, area in Isaiah. Then he goes on to say, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. It's talking about the Jewish people by and large. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. So some are going to hear and believe the ones who did not see Christ die, dying, but the ones who did aren't going to uh, believe. And of course we know it back in chapter 6 when God commissions Isaiah to go and to preach to the Jews. He says go, but, the, but seeing they're not going to see and hearing they're not going to hear. I'm closed up their, uh, their understanding so that they cannot understand what they're saying. Of course, that's what's going to lead to the cross. And then uh, in John, we see a couple, a couple more verses here that where this is referred to that I think helps us understand this. Paul says in a chapter that we're studying the first Corinthians now, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So we see that it's not because there's a difference between Jew and Gentile. It's that the whole world is caught up in sin and blinded by their sin. And no one understands the gospel. No one understands what Christ was doing unless it has been given them to understand. But notice what John 12 says. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So this is, this is a, this really goes along with chapter 53, right? So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. So, Jesus, both in his life and his death, uh, it was rejected. What does John chapter 1 say? He came into his own, but his own received him not. And so, Isaiah 3 opens up with this quandary that Christ is doing something great. He's being exalted on this cross and the people are not getting it. In verse 2, the first thing that confused the Jews is that he outwardly appeared to be just a normal man. There's nothing about Jesus as he walked around on earth that suggests that he was God incarnate. I think verse 2 refers not to the cross but sets up the cross. It speaks about Jesus before the cross as he was growing up, right? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that he should desire him. Why did the Jews struggle to believe and understand the cross? Because Jesus appeared to be just an ordinary man. He came presenting himself as the Son of God, as the second person of the Trinity, and yet he didn't look at them. He did not walk around with a halo over his head. He wasn't glowing except for that one moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. He looked like an ordinary man. Now he did some extraordinary things, but of course we know that there were some men in the Bible, uh, that ordinary men who did some miracles too. So that alone didn't state that he was God incarnate. Everything about his circumstances appeared normal. In fact, from their point of view, he was born, uh, he was conceived before 
uh, out of wedlock, you might say. That's why the Jews consider him to be an illegitimate uh, and to this day. So everything about his situation made the Jews struggle to believe what uh, he came to do and who he was. And then in verse 3, to make matters worse, he was personally rejected that as he announced who he was and what he had come to do, uh, he was rejected. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This wasn't, when he says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, it wasn't just that probably he lost his dad at an earlier age, which he probably did, and that was certainly a sorrowful thing, it caused grief, but that's not really what it's referring to here. This is a man who came to present himself to his people as their Messiah, and he was fought against and rejected every step of the way to the point that he was crucified. It would be one thing to be rejected and crucified, but to be rejected primarily because of who you are and because of your message uh, would have been, you understand why he would have been described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He, he fought tooth and nail with the Pharisees during his ministry. And so as one from whom men hid their face, hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We rejected him. And not just rejected, but we, we if someone who goes into trouble to, if you, if you walk by, they will turn around and not even look at you. I mean, it was, it was a personal thing. But then we come to verse 4 and we begin to see why all this had to happen. We know that it happened. But the point is, why did it happen? Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. <clears throat> the misery that sin has brought to mankind, the sorrows and grief that sin has brought upon us, he has taken upon himself when he went to the cross, he's done something about them. In fact, as we read down through this uh, chapter, notice how many times, how clear and unmistakable Isaiah states that what Jesus was doing was not on his behalf, but on behalf of others. He was a sacrificial lamb. He bore, never does it say that he bore his sins and his grief, or uh, his sorrows, in verse 9, um, it says in 9b, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, never did he suffer for his own sake. It makes it very clear he's suffering for somebody else's sins. And that becomes very important. And it's emphasized over and over again. Substitution. Jesus was a substitute sacrifice for us. If Isaiah says anything, it is that Jesus died in our place as he took our sins upon himself, even referring to here uh, as a wounded for our transgressions. Down in verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter. In other words, it, he, he is seen as the suffering servant, as the Lamb of God in the Old Testament if there was anything that a Jew knew, it was that you, the, the land that they sacrificed was bearing my sins so that I can go free, so that my sins are forgiven. 
They would confess their sins upon the head of that lamb, and then they would kill it. It bore by the wrath of God for me that was that is against me. He took it so that I could go free, so that I could have peace with God. If Isaiah is saying anything as you read through this, it is that. Whatever else we see and benefit from in Christ's death, it is first and foremost a substitutionary death on our behalf. Because if it's not, there's no lasting benefit. Christ died for whatever reason. It really, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. If it doesn't take care of my sin problem, if it doesn't establish peace with God, and give me the ability to live in the presence of God forever, it's of no value, at least no lasting value. So we need to emphasize that the word chastisement that we'll come to here in a moment carries with it the idea of penal suffering. When your child disobeys you and you chastise him, you're punishing him for disobedience. That's what sin has brought upon us. So when he bears our chastisement, He's taking our thanking for us, right? His pain wasn't just an example of love. It was penal suffering to satisfy justice. We had broken God's law, and we deserved eternal separation from Him, the wrath of God against us. Now, liberals hate this because it requires the fact that all men have a sin nature. All men are born sinners. Under God's wrath. And if there's anything the liberals hate, it's that God hates any of us. Or that God's wrath abides on any of us. Because we're all pretty well good people. The only thing that ruins us is our environment. Those that try to make the cross just an example of love by God, or an example to follow, uh, as a way, in some way, to earn salvation, miss the point of the cross entirely. He suffered the just wrath of God on our behalf, and that has brought us peace with God. And so the cross, now listen to this, the cross isn't a way for us to avert God's wrath by our works. He bore what we could not do. There are those who say that the cross is an example of God's love, and if we follow Jesus' example, then God will let us into heaven. And so they take the cross and they use it to destroy the cross. The cross isn't a way for us to avert God's wrath by our own works. If the cross is an example for us to follow and earn heaven, then they are using Christ to deny Christ. They're using the cross to undo the cross. The cross is because we can't do anything to please God, only the Son could. So He was satisfying God's wrath on our behalf. It is not a means for us to work our way to heaven. That is completely take the cross and turn it around 380, uh, 180 degrees. Now be careful there, because 360 doesn't go the same way, right? 180, it goes in the exact opposite direction of why Christ came to start with. It is popular for some to say that God doesn't have wrath for sinners, because, you know, God is the God of love. He loves everybody equally. He would never send anybody to hell. Or if he does, eventually he's going to let you out. And so, they don't believe that God has wrath for sinners. And that really salvation is us just accepting his love. And the cross 
is a demonstration of how much God loves us, and not just that, how much, how worthy we are, how wonderful we are, how much value that God places upon us. You know, some of the older people here might remember Robert Schuller, the Crystal Cathedral. We used to sometimes we would listen to things on Sunday morning on the TV from different things, and sometimes you know when that program would go off. Robert Schuller would be on there, so we'd maybe listen to that a little bit until we got sick of it and turned it off. That's about when I was a kid. But Robert Schuller used to teach that the cross shows us how important we are and how much God loves us. And so salvation, well, first of all, sin is believing the lie of Satan that you're just not all that good. You're not, you know, you're, you're bad. And salvation is us believing that God loves us, that we really are worthy of that love, and, and rejecting what Satan says. So accepting God's love and forgiving ourselves for believing the lie of Satan, that's basically what salvation was to someone like Robert Schuller, which is just old liberalism. But that denies what the, that Sin, that, that sin has separated us from God and brought upon us the just wrath of God. God's wrath abides on the wicked, the Bible says, and it must be removed so that we might have eternal life. So just acknowledging that God loves us is not repentance and faith. It would be hard to convince someone in hell that God loves them and that they are there because they did not accept his love. Robert Schuller didn't believe in hell to begin with. If you want to know a more biblical view of what's going on here on the cross, what the cross means to us, uh, Thomas Kelly uh, has a great song. Here's just one verse of it. We, we sing it now and then. Ye who think of sin but lightly, and, and, and if all sin is us just not accepting how wonderful we are, that God loves us, and that's a good example of it. Like, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark, behold, the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed. Son of man and Son of God. That is what's going on on the cross when he bears the awful load that we might go free. If sin is just our confusion, then there's no way Jesus would have ever had to be crucified to start with. Why in the world would the Father send the Son to be hung on a, naked on a tree if we were just confused and needed a little light? And remember, of course, that being hung on a tree made him cursed by God. And we're going to, he brings that out here in just a moment. It, uh, so in, in the middle of verse 4, he uses the word yet. Yet. So surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's what he's doing on the cross. Yet, the Jews weren't seeing it. And so he says, yet we... As we, those who saw Christ on the cross, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. All the Jews could see 
was that one hanging on a tree under the law was cursed by God. So how could they? How can he be the Messiah when he's under the curse of God? So, so it was. The, that's why we read in First Corinthians the, the uh, cross and the stumbling block to the Jews. They, they could never accept the fact that their Messiah was going to suffer the curse of God. They saw that he was being stricken, smitten, and affected by God, but not in a good way. The first phrase is relating what is going on, and the second one says that they didn't get it in verse 4 there. This is why they stumbled over the cross. They saw him come under the curse and could make no sense out of it. Because there's no way Jesus could be cursed by God and at the same time accepted by him. But of course, that's the whole point. Jesus had to be rejected by the Father as he bore our sins, and in so doing, bear the curse of being a sinner. And, and that's, and, and to be accepted by God because of He's a perfect sacrifice. He was smitten by God, but He had to be because He was carrying our guilt and suffering, what we were all headed for, unless somebody did something to avert God's wrath. And so the cross offended the Jews because they immediately knew that Jesus was bearing a curse from God as He hung on that tree. And so in their minds, it disqualified him as Messiah. But of course, that's exactly what he had to do. And all those, even today, who reject penal substitution are doing the same thing. To say that Jesus couldn't possibly bury our sins on the tree, that that's divine child abuse and all the other silly stuff that people say, is to miss the point entirely. Some want a savior that offers them an example that they can follow. Or well, all that does is, that, is let you become your own savior. But it's all the same mistake that we're reading about here in chapter 53, verse 4. And so in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah makes it very plain what's going on. We know that under the law, to hang on a tree meant that you were bearing the sin of someone else so that they could be let off the hook, as it were. And so he says that. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. You see, substitution, substitution. So verse 5, when he says, but, Isaiah is saying, wait, you don't understand. You see him smitten by God, cursed by God, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He's explaining what, what's going on. He was pierced, literally, to, to puncture. He was pierced for our transgressions. You know, for he was nailed to the cross. And so the word but requires the idea that an objection has been made and now it needs to be answered. The first part of chapter 5 makes us think of Genesis 3.15. Where he says he was crushed for our iniquities. And remember that God told Adam that through the seed, that the woman's seed, he shall crush Satan's head. So it's a reference, I think, back to the original, to the fallen original sin. It literally means to break into pieces. The cross is the fulfillment of God's promise to undo the fall. And so you notice all the things that he brings out here in verse 5. He was crucified for our sins. He, he was his being crushed points to the fall as he dies for our sins that we received in Adam. He receives our punishment so that we can have peace with God. 
He heals us of all the problems that sin has brought us. There, he says, by his strife, we were healed. Everything he brings out speaks on that text. The first, the last phrase literally speaks of marks that are made with some, something that's struck. And so, Isaiah 700 years before the fact, <coughs> excuse me, tells us that the Messiah was going to be beaten as part of his suffering. He was going to bear the marks. But in those marks, we would find healing. Ultimately, we shall be free from all the effects of sin because Jesus suffered on our behalf. You can call it divine child abuse if you think that the father is just, uh, you know, making his son suffer needlessly. But the father isn't being mean to the son because the son has agreed to come. It was a, a result of the eternal counsels of God where the father gave a people for the son to redeem. And so the son comes to redeem them. Uh, why? Because only God can save us. Otherwise, somebody else gets the glory. And God must receive all the glory. It was a divinely concealed plan to redeem sinners in such a way that so that there's no hint that um, we have anything to do with it. Those that call it divine child abuse actually think sin could be dealt with in some different way. But of course, they don't see what sin is to begin with. So, so we see that his work will be misunderstood, but that his work is the good news that must be accepted in order to be saved. And we have seen that it is the penal work of substitution that has borne our guilt and has died for us. So he's going to do a work that is going to result in his glory. It's going to be received by those who never heard it, the Gentile world, but those who watch Jesus Christ be crucified are going to uh, reject it because they, they cannot understand what's going on, and yet it is the great, the good message of salvation, the good news. <clears throat> and so in verse 6, he tells us why it is necessary, because we've already alluded to this. But he says, look, this had to happen because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is because we are sinners, and therefore it is being taught that there are consequences for being a transgressor of God's law. It is not biblical to think that God loves everyone equally and that everyone is going to end up in heaven so that we can live any old way we want to and that God still loves us, do what you want to do, it really doesn't matter. There is no way Jesus would have been allowed to suffer crucifixion if God could just forgive sinners willy-nilly and everything's okay. The cross is proof, as the song we quoted said, that sin is going to be judged by suffering the awful wrath of God and it's going to be a horrible thing. And so <clears throat> the only way we could escape that is if someone took that our place and bore that wrath for us. He had to come down and do the work that we would be lost. And so verse 6 says that the reason Messiah was going to suffer is because we are sinners. And it isn't just really bad news. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the bad sinners who are going to hell that need to be saved. Even the fluffy sheep are under God's wrath because they're merely wandering away from the fold. 
in Adam, we have wandered away from God. We are doing our own thing. That's the essence of sin. You know, we like to point to Hitler and how awful what he did is sin, and it certainly was. But anybody who says, you know, I'm going to live the life I want to live, I'm going to do things my way, and if I don't want to go to church, and if I want to go worship God on the golf course or on the lake on Sunday morning, that's okay, is as as awful a sin as anything Hitler ever did, because it is saying, God, I don't care what you say, and I don't care who you are, I don't feel like I have to worship you, I'll do what I want to do. That's all Hitler was doing. So you can look like a little fluffy sheep, but you still are under the wrath of God. But, and so what does uh, that parable he's referring to here, what does it say? What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he was has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine to go into open country, go after the one that is lost until he finds it, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. When God saves us, he doesn't just say, Okay, you're no longer, you're a forgiven sinner, now you can just live any old way you want to. He puts us on his shoulders, and he carries us back to himself. He, put, he brings us back into a right relationship with God. And if you aren't lying on the shoulders of Christ right now, being carried to heaven by his might, but instead you think you're getting away with something, living your own way, then you're not a saved sheep, you're a wandering sheep, and, and, and if you die like that, it's only going to prove that you were a goat the whole time. So we say all that so we can appreciate the fact that Jesus is not in the grave, but has risen. What happened on Sunday morning is that the Father was testifying that he has accepted Christ's sacrifice as our substitute. All the animals that died in the Old Testament were still dead, and the Bible says that their blood never accomplished the forgiveness of sin, but the God-man, when he died, it did because God has raised him from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. And so as we read down to verse 9, starting in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, Yet he opened on his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before shears are silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did not try to get out of the cross because he came to do that. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, who understood him? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And of course we know that generally someone who was crucified would have been buried out in a potter's field. His unmarked grave, nobody would have known where he was. But because there was going to be a testimony, there were going to be hostile witnesses to the resurrection in that uh, Roman guard. He is placed in Joseph of Arimathea's uh, tomb by divine predestination so that there would be witnesses. He wasn't going to be lost in a crowd and out in some unmarked grave. And here, Isaiah testifies to exactly what happened. And then in verses 10 and 11, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to open grief. Again, the Godhead, this is the Godhead at work. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
So, again, keeping in line with everything that we've said up to this point, as a penal substitution, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. A couple of great things there. First of all, we're a reference to the resurrection. He shall prolong his days. He died, and yet he shall live again. And he shall be satisfied with what he has done. Notice that here in verse 10. The will of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. He shall see his offspring. He is dying for a people, and he will see them again. Everything, Everyone that Christ died for shall be saved. Everything the Lord intended to do in saving sinners, he has done. There is never a hint in God's word that God is ever frustrated with the work of Christ on the cross. God isn't trying to save everyone and that there's only a few that are letting him. It says his will shall prosper. He is satisfied with what he has accomplished. And all that is summed up in these verses. And it, this, we'll just finish out the chapter then we'll move to Matthew 28 real quick. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. So what he died for, this anguish that he took for us, he is satisfied in what he accomplished. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There you see this penal substitution. In his death, he is imputing to us his righteousness. He is forgiving our sins and making us righteous before God. And he shall bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with his transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for transgressors. Over and over again, it makes it so very clear for what Christ is doing on the cross. Anybody who doesn't understand what's going on on the cross has, is refusing to read God's word and to accept what God has plainly said. Okay, how does that then affect the resurrection. What does that mean to us? How do we apply the resurrection and all that? We've already sort of made a little bit of an application, but one reason why I like Matthew 28's account is because it has a couple of contrasts here. First of all, notice in verses 6 and 7 of Matthew 28 that the angels don't seem to be in all the accounts don't seem, are not surprised that Jesus was risen from the dead. They keep saying, you know, he told you he was going to do this. You know, why are you so surprised? Don't be afraid. He's risen just like he said he would, as the scriptures have foretold, as, as we just saw. So in a sense, they're saying to get over the shock because he's risen uh, means something to you. You now have a duty. So we see the same thing in, in, in Mark and Luke's account. Um, Notice, notice the same thing. He said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place that they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you shall see him that told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So you see this element of fear, and yet the angel says, look, don't be afraid. You have a duty to uh, perform because of the resurrection. And then we see the same thing in Luke 24. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? It's almost like they're, I mean, they're not making fun of them, but they're saying, uh, you should know that Christ is risen. He said he was going to be raised the third day. The Old Testament said this, so what are you doing? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? And so the message of the angels is important in that everything Matthew tells us demands that we understand, obey, and obey what we learn. And you notice that the, the uh, angels said uh, in verse uh, 4, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And so he says, Come, see the place where he lay. So the first thing he says here is come. Understand the significance of the empty tomb. That's what I want us to do today. Having said what we've said, I want us to understand the significance. The whole work of Christ was to get us to God. It is a story that inherently has an invitation built in. Come to Christ for your salvation. In particular, we are to come and understand not just that Jesus is alive, not in some generic way as Andy Stanley thinks is good enough, but to understand what's going on here. This is why he also says, see, come and see. It is the same word, you remember in the book of John when we studied the resurrection and Peter and James, John ran to the tomb. John, it says, stop and look at the tomb. The idea there is looking with your eyes. Peter runs by him, goes in, and he looks around. That word for look means to consider. And then finally John comes in, and, it, and he uses the word for look. that means John got it. John realized Jesus was alive. And, and the, the angel is using that same word here. I want you to understand their significance. He's progressing from the eye to the understanding of the mind. There are inescapable facts. As we go into the tomb and we see that his body is passed through the grave clothes, they were not ripped off by grave robbers. As we consider the empty tomb, grasp the condescension of God to come down to man and die for us. Grasp the love. Grasp as well the horrors of sin that requires it. Understand the fact that we are under the condemnation of death. That death is inescapable. It is appointed to all men to die. And after that, the judgment. If we could be, if we could escape it some other way, Jesus would not have had to die. But most importantly, see that Jesus is not in the grave so that we can accept him as our substitute by faith because God has raised him from the dead. He, because God has accepted Christ's substitute as our substitute, we can trust in him. And so verse 7 says, the angel says, now go. To come, consider the resurrection, but now go, he says here. Uh, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you shall see him. See, I have told you. So we might think that this means that we are to go and tell the story, and certainly that is an application. We, we do have the story of the gospel, that the truth are to go and tell the world, no doubt about it. But in another sense, we are to go and live in light of the resurrection. It means something to us. It's life-changing. 
I might apply it by saying that we are to go and live in this world with all its trials and uncertainty, with all its disappointments and pain, we can go and we can live in joy and live without fear because the angel keeps telling them, don't fear. We don't have to fear these things because Christ has gained the victory that we have a blessed hope to look forward to. Go patient, go and live patiently because of the resurrection. And so as I close, I want us to notice there's two groups of people in this passage that are, and both are afraid. You got the Roman guard. They see the resurrection and they are paralyzed by fear. And what a picture of the world. They are, they're, they are, they don't understand what's going on. The Roman guard didn't understand the resurrection and they're afraid to the point that they can't do anything. They're paralyzed. What a picture of those walking around this world blind uh, not understanding life, everything that happens, they don't understand, they're paralyzed, they're afraid, they're worried, they're trying to hide all that in pleasure and in whatever else they can do to avoid thinking about life because they don't understand it. What a picture of someone who stands before God someday, apart from Jesus Christ, with no hope, paralyzed in fear because they are outside of Jesus. Then you have the women, and they're afraid too. But they understand. They, they have been called to go into the tomb and understand what Christ be the life means. So while they're afraid, and they have to deal with this life, they are not paralyzed by fear. They are busy serving the Lord. And sometimes things happen to us, and it brings fear and anxiety and problems and pain and sorrow and tears. And yet, it doesn't have to overcome us because Christ is alive. Because we know that we're going to be with Him someday. And so while in the pain, we can serve. You don't have to be paralyzed by fear. These women were told to go and find the disciples of the good news. Yes, they were afraid. But they should never be paralyzed. It's okay to worry to some degree, to have anxiety. As long as you are able to give it to the Lord and to, in the cross of Christ, find the strength to serve anyway. The women were struck by the glory of Christ. They were afraid, but they did not fear. They did not fear in a sense that left them paralyzed, but they, their fear brought, lead them to service. Both the angels and Jesus say, do not be afraid, but instead go and serve. The word of God explains that we have by faith, been saved and empowers us to go and tell the world and to live in faith. So, Jesus says, fear not, I have overcome the world. It is the joy of the resurrection that overcomes our fears, that overcomes our anxieties, our misgivings, our misapprehensions, and gives us hope that tomorrow we too shall rise. And so, let me just... Uh, end with this verse because this I think is what the, the, the main application Jesus tells the disciples just before he goes to the cross behold the hour is coming indeed it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone yet I am not alone for the father is with me and remember it's this applies to us because 
Christ is alive and we have his spirit, we are never alone. Though all forsake you, if you have Christ, you're never alone. Jesus demonstrated that in his life, and now we have that same life. So he says, I have said these things to you. So again, consider what is the significance of all this, that in me you may have peace, and again, it's not a nebulous in me, knowing Jesus, whatever. It is being united to his death, burial, and resurrection by the work of the Holy Spirit, by having literal, real peace with God. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Don't fear. I have overcome the world. And the resurrection is his overcoming of, of the powers of Satan and sin, and now we have that same power. So do not be afraid. Serve the Lord with gladness. May the peace of God rule your heart. All the different promises of Scripture are ours in Christ. And the resurrection lets us is proof that God has accepted his sacrifice and has given us his spirit. We can go not in fear, but in joy and peace and hope that the resurrection, we understand that this is what's really going on. It is something we can bite, something, you know, it's neat, we can get hold of. This is real, this is true, this is how this is applied. It's not just something we do once a year, that don't really understand why. No, this is real, and it's a matter of life and death. Alright, we'll stop there today. Any questions or comments?